You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, crypto assets, they surge as a court overturns the SEC and paves the way for the first US Bitcoin ETF. We'll keep you covered throughout the hour. Plus, we'll bring you the latest from the earnings front as China's PDD surges, middle revenue beat and Xiaomi tops profit estimates. More ahead. And Apollo IO raises $100 million to reach a $1.6 billion valuation, an up round. We'll sit down with the CEO later this hour to discuss. But first, well, let's hone in on what has been the story of the last hour, Ed. Bitcoin surging, that sudden move to the upside. We're back in that $27,000 range on the OG of the crypto space, up 5.6%. Why? Because it seems as though this federal court has gone against the grain of the SEC, has decided that maybe we can carve away for a spot Bitcoin ETF. This is all about the grayscale ruling, Ed. Yeah, and we're also seeing that app unsurprisingly play out in crypto-related stocks. Coinbase, for example, jumping by the most in more than six weeks. Our colleagues at Bloomberg Intelligence have a note out that kind of applies to all of these names, that each part of the universe-related crypto may benefit as more ETFs get approved, but they do note that there are multiple applications, right? So BlackRock being one institution that has an ETF application in. How does Coinbase benefit as an example from servicing those up 13.4%? I think we've got to go to the understanding what has happened. It was a bit of a surprise. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Shanali Basak. And I guess a good place to start, Shanali, is what did the appeals court say about the original SEC decision to block an application for a Bitcoin ETF? Now, I think the part that's very important here, Ed, is this idea that the denial of Grayscale's proposal, and this is according to the ruling, that the denial was arbitrary and capricious because the commission failed to explain the difference of treatment of similar products, which was a key part of the Grayscale argument here. When you look at the decision here by the court, and remember there are three judges that ruled in Grayscale's favor, there is a process that you have to understand. It's this idea that there are now 45 days in which both sides review this ruling and the SEC could always push back. Now the other thing that is a big open question for Grayscale is the idea of whether they have to refile for an ETF. Remember, when you look at Grayscale's filing relative to many other filings, including
including BlackRock's own filing, is this idea of a surveillance sharing agreement. That is something that has largely been said to be benefiting some of the filings, such as BlackRock's. Actually, in the next hour or so, we're also going to be speaking to Coinbase's top lawyer about the benefits of, for example, a surveillance sharing agreement, in which Coinbase has been a big part of that push. It is unclear how soon Grayscale can get from a GBTC to an ETF conversion. And really, right now, when you look at GBTC, the the it has narrowed. The, um, the discount to its net asset value has narrowed quite meaningfully. But in recent years, the reason to hold GBTC has really become part of the idea that it would eventually convert to an ETF. Uh, even just today, in the wake of the ruling, you were looking this morning at a 25% nearly discount to net asset value that has narrowed to 15%. And so you are seeing it come much closer to its net asset value in the wake of this ruling in the expectation of, even with this uncertainty, th this is still a large win for Grayscale and the crypto industry. And you are seeing, to the point you're making earlier, Bitcoin prices and other crypto-related stocks rise in synchrony. SEC saying that the agency is reviewing the court decision on Grayscale and of course on Grayscale anticipating what $5.7 billion could be unearthed, could be of value, could be sort of given back to the investor base if indeed it could turn from a trust into an ETF. Shanali Basak all over the sort of nuance and really going into some of the micro, but let's go a bit more macro what this means for the industry. I'm pleased to say Aya Kantorovich is with us. She is the co-founder and co-CEO of Fractal. It's an infrastructure provider for institutional crypto trading on chain. Does this lure in more institutional players? Does this mean that this is almost a safer space to get into now? Absolutely. And you can see that in terms of overall market sentiment. So uh, CoinShares published a very interesting report this morning that showed the outflow of dollars into crypto products, institutional products, was at its highest similar to March during the banking crisis. And so overall sentiment was really negative leading into this news. And I think to all the points mentioned before, the market was really caught off guard in terms of the announcement this morning. It's really great. It changes the the sentiment in the U.S. and globally for institutions around this is moving forward. We're actually going to get the guidelines we've been looking for in terms of how to approach the space at large. And go global for a moment with us because, look, other places have spot Bitcoin ETFs. What has been the U.S.'s issue with it? What more broadly have you felt is different with the SEC versus other regulators? At a high level, it's really the different players uh, that are in the space today, whether it is on the fact of the SEC working closely with Coinbase, and obviously there's a lawsuit there that they're working through the SEC and Grayscale. There's a bunch of intermediaries today that the SEC is working with, and it is just simply unclear in terms of how the SEC is going to regulate versus uh, them pushing out a rule book or Congress having to just take the step and make guidelines for everyone in the uh, United States of follow. And unfortunately, even if you compare to the UK with MICA, uh, you know, we just haven't seen that level of proactive uh, guidelines in the United States. Judge Naomi Rao, who was on the appeals panel, pointed out that specifically the SEC's treatment of grayscale was arbitrary and capricious because they hadn't treated others in the same way. And our colleague Katie Greifeld, who leads our ETF coverage, points out that this is just one thing that might happen this week. There's a deadline Friday for BlackRock. There's a 21 shares in Avesco deadline Saturday. What, what happens next to your mind? 
Yeah, again, I think the market was just simply caught off guard. We were expecting this GBTC uh, news to come out in the last two weeks. And so on the backs of Macro, on the backs of Jackson Hole, uh, you're just seeing that the market was not expecting this news and overall sentiment was negative and implied volatility was at its lowest. And so really what that sets us up for is a very volatile Q3 and Q4. Uh, We're probably going to see the next three months have a lot of activity between these different uh, players. And listen, the legal bandwidth of BlackRock and Fidelity, as well as ARK, is going to be far, far larger than some of the crypto players. And we will likely see those conversations get pushed further than uh, what we've seen to date. So it's very exciting uh, for the United States. Who benefits the most from this? If an ETF is approved beyond the ETF provider themselves, who wins? Institutional investors, uh, and really the reason they win is institutional investors are looking for regulated paths to get exposure to these assets uh, in, in structures that they're used to in traditional finance, and that just hasn't been available yet today in the United States. And so really this is a huge push forward for us. We've always said that the institutional wave is coming, but it really can't come until we have very simple regulated products available in the market, and this is a bit push forward towards that. And I, that's exactly what Fractal is all about. I mean, a spot ETF is pretty basic at best. A futures ETF too. You're thinking about options offerings. You're thinking about how you can get basically traditional finance, the TradFi world, to see what they can do in normal finance and bring it to crypto. It, how easier or slower process is that? That's exactly right. It's it's a slow process only because it's taken so long for us to get this to this first base uh, with the spot ETF. But to your point, once we get the spot ETF, it's going to be so much clearer for us to be able to uh, give access. You saw Coinbase, CME, who are all able to trade futures in the United States. And that took a long time for that to happen as well in the States. And so you're able to see a path forward for us to really be able to op- offer not only options, but structured products in a regulated way that that institutions are comfortable uh, getting access to. It's, it's really very exciting. Great to have you here. So we'll talk, walk us all through it, the sort of ramifications more broadly of this very specific ruling that's come from the appeals court. Aya Kantorovich, of course, is from Fractal. She's based here in the New York. All right, we're checking in on some earnings movers out of China. These are the U.S.-listed shares of some China tech names. PDD, top-line growth, 66%, way outperforming names like Alibaba and JD. But it's actually about Timu, their U.S.-based business that we're kind of interested in. It came out at the Super Bowl with an ad. We'll dig into that with our team in a second. BYD doubled net income in the quarter. We'd already talked about how BYD had had a record um, with both plug-in hybrids and battery electric cars in the quarter just gone, now showing up on the bottom line in terms of profit. NEO, a wider than expected quarterly loss, a completely different story in the EV space. And then Xiaomi, an interesting one in kind of the smartphone handset uh, discussion, better than expected financial results. So much to unpick. I think what they all have in common is that we're getting some more signals about the Chinese economy and the Chinese consumer. Joining us with more, Bloomberg's Isabel Lee in New York and Henry Wren out in London. Henry, let's start with you with some of the, the, the specific names. I think we'll start with Xiaomi first because this was one that was a little bit surprising to some investors. 
Yeah, so Xiaomi's revenue fell by about 4% during the last quarter, but that decline has been better than analysts' expectations. So that does show that the smartphone market slump might have been past its uh, worst period. Remember, Xiaomi sells smartphone devices to all over the world. So it's not just in mainland China, but also in India, in many emerging market countries, in Latin America, some parts of Europe as well. So its results does seem to be a barometer for the global uh, smartphone market uh, sentiment. And remember that Xiaomi is also um, prioritizing its uh, profitability and it's pushing through its strategy for premium offerings. Mm. And, it's, and, and it does seem to be bearing fruit. Its average selling price in China has expanded by 24% in the last quarter. And the company said on earnings call it's, that it's, it, it seeks to expand its strategy to not just in China but also overseas. It says we just need to focus on these premium products like these foldable phones and we do well in this yes. category. It's interesting, isn't it, that they're saying, yeah, let's go for a higher price point. Let's actually still be thinking about overall profitability over growth when their overall macroeconomy, Isabel, is in a pretty painful place. We just look at how much they're having to up the ante with what we understand going to be cutting mortgage rates, for example, to try and spur on the Chinese economy. What do any of these earnings really tell us about that? So I think these two, and Henry can go way into more detail, especially with PDD, is they're good earnings. As you can see, the stocks are really just reacting very positively to them. But then they come with a new one. So for instance, just to touch on lightly on PDD, its focus is more lower income um, consumers. So then that might bode well for China's faltering economy. So it kind of works reverse in that way. But Chinese economy still really isn't doing as well. Nearly every day, you see one gloomy headline after the other. For instance, today we have Country Garden Holdings. It's the a big property giant that's making fresh efforts to avo avoid a default. And then we have China Great Wall Asset Management, that's a state debt-run manager, and it's also suffering a bond slump. So one after the other, this ceaseless warning we're just seeing, especially from the credit market, is just really underscoring one thing, that the economy is weak. And to your point, we also have a lot of developments in the regional bank space, in the mortgage space. So. It's not looking that good just yet, although, I mean, it's not all gloom and doom because as we can see, some standout companies like PDD and Xiaomi are doing well. So sometimes what's good for one thing can be bad for yes. another. You know, Henry was showing that big jump on the PDD ADRs, US listed shares. You know, th there's a story here about them beating out other domestic Chinese names in terms of top line growth. But we learned a lot about their US business that we don't discuss PDD a lot on this show. Just explain what happened in the quarter. Yeah, sure. So um, the overall results are good, as we can see in the market reaction. It's a sharp, um, positive reaction from investors. Twenty percent of share price um, expansion, like during the during the session. But as you said, the focus is really on Timu. It's budget shopping app overseas. That app has been expanding very fast in Europe, but as well as in US as well. So the company disclosed very little about its Timu shopping app, but it does include that in one of the its lines called transactional services revenue. So that transactional services revenue includes some things including the TMU, uh, the international business, but also the grocery buying business. But that revenue has been well above analyst estimates. So it does seem to show that that TMU has been gaining traction overseas. However, um, there's another concern that's on the profitability side on a margin. So the company is expanding yes. overseas, so it's investing more. So the margins could be hit because of that.
We want to thank both of you, of course, Henry Wren, Isabel Lee, across the macro, micro picture of China and indeed a little bit of what the US consumer is telling us as well. And let's dig in there for a moment because Best Buy says that, look, it's reached the low point in tech demand after a pretty strong second quarter report pointed to an uptick or maybe at least a bottoming in demand for consumer electronics and household appliances. Let's go to our own Brendan Case who's in Dallas with more. Look, it's still pretty ugly in the quarter just gone, but it seems as though maybe they think there's a turning of the tide. Yeah, they're, what they're saying is that they're starting to see light at the end of the tunnel. The backdrop, of course, here is that the sales declines at Best Buy have been among the biggest, um, you know, in, in the world of, of big U.S. retailers. And what they're saying now is that, you know, they're starting to get a little bit less bad, and they have a line of sight to, you know, being kind of flat, maybe even growing a little bit next year. They also said that short refresh cycles in the tech are being driven by, guess what, Caroline? Artificial intelligence. Our mm. thanks to Bloomberg's Brendan Case. Now, coming up here on the show, we're going to talk about the state of buy now, pay later, and speak to a CEO of a company that launches in opposition to the movement. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. All right, we're checking in on some earnings movers out of China. These are the U.S.-listed shares of some China tech names. PDD, top-line growth, 66%, way outperforming names like Alibaba and JD. But it's actually about Timu, their U.S.-based business that we're kind of interested in. It came out at the Super Bowl with an ad. We'll dig into that with our team in a second. BYD doubled net income in the quarter. We'd already talked about how BYD had had a record um, with both plug-in hybrids and battery electric cars in the quarter just gone, now showing up on the bottom line in terms of profit. Neo a wider than expected quarterly loss, a completely different story in the EV space. And then Xiaomi, an interesting one in kind of the smartphone 
smartphone handset uh, discussion, better than expected financial results. So much to unpick. I think what they all have in common is that we're getting some more signals about the Chinese economy and the Chinese consumer. Joining us for more, with more Bloomberg's Elizabeth, Isabel Lee in New York and Henry Wren out in London. Henry, let's start with you with some of the, the, the specific names. I think we'll start with Xiaomi first because this was one that was a little bit surprising to some investors. Yeah, so Xiaomi's revenue fell by about 4% during the last quarter, but that decline has been better than analysts' expectations. So that does show that the smartphone market slump might have been past its uh, worst period. Remember, Xiaomi sells smartphone devices to all over the world. So it's not just in mainland China, but also in India, in many emerging market countries, in Latin America, some parts of Europe as well. So its results does seem to be a barometer for the global uh, smartphone market uh, sentiment. And remember that Xiaomi is also um, prioritizing its uh, profitability and it's pushing through its strategy for premium offerings. Mm. And, it's, and, and it does seem to be bearing fruit. Its average selling price in China has expanded by 24% in the last quarter. And the company said on earnings call it's, that it's, it, it seeks to expand its strategy to not just in China but also overseas. It says we just need to focus on these premium products like these foldable phones, and we do well in this yes. category. It's interesting, isn't it, that they're saying, yeah, let's go for a higher price point. Let's actually still be thinking about overall profitability over growth when their overall macroeconomy is about. It's in a pretty painful place. We just look at how much they're having to up the ante with what we understand going to be cutting mortgage rates, for example, to try and spur on the Chinese economy. What do any of these earnings really tell us about that? So I think these two, and Henry can go way into more detail, especially with PDD, is they're good earnings. As you can see, the stocks are really just reacting very positively to them, but then they come with a new one. So for instance, just to touch on lightly on PDD, its focus is more lower income um, consumers. So then that might bode well for China's faltering economy. So it kind of works reverse in that way, but Chinese economy still really isn't doing as well. Nearly every day, you see one gloomy headline after the other. For instance, today we have Country Garden Holdings. It's the a big property giant that's making fresh efforts to avo avoid a default. And then we have China Great Wall Asset Management, that's a state debt-run manager, and it's also suffering a bond slump. So one after the other, this ceaseless warning we're just seeing, especially from the credit market, is just really underscoring one thing, that the economy is weak. And to your point, we also have a lot of developments in the regional bank space, in the mortgage space. So. It's not looking that good just yet. Although, I mean, it's not all gloom and doom because as we can see, some standout companies like PDD and Xiaomi are doing well. So sometimes what's good for one thing can be bad for yes. another. You know, Henry, we're showing that big jump on the PDD ADRs, US listed shares. You know, th there's a story here about them beating out other domestic Chinese names in terms of top line growth. But we learned a lot about their US business that we don't discuss PDD a lot on this show. Just explain what happened in the quarter. Yeah, sure. So um, the overall results were good, as we can see in the market reaction. It's a sharp, um, positive reaction from investors. Twenty percent of share price um, expansion, like during the during the session. But as you said, the focus is really on Timu. It's budget shopping app overseas. That app has been expanding very fast in Europe, but as well as in US as well. So the company disclosed very little about its Timu shopping app, but it does include that in one of 
developed it, its lines called transactional services revenue. So that transactional services revenue includes some things, including the T-Mood, uh, the international business, but also the grocery buying business. But that revenue has been well above analyst estimates. So it does seem to show that that T-Mood has been gaining traction overseas. However, um, there's another concern that's on the profitability side on the margin. So the company is expanding yes. overseas, so it's investing more, so the margins could be hit because of that. We want to thank both of you, of course, Henry Ren, Isabel Lee, across the macro, micro picture of China and indeed a little bit of what the U.S. consumer is telling us as well. And let's dig in there for a moment because Best Buy says that, look, it's reached the low point in tech demand after a pretty strong second quarter report pointed to an uptick or maybe at least a bottoming in demand for consumer electronics and household appliances. Let's go to our own Brendan Case, who's in Dallas with more. Look, it's still pretty ugly in the quarter just gone, but it seems as though maybe they think there's a turning of the tide. Yeah, they're, what they're saying is that they're starting to see light at the end of the tunnel. The backdrop, of course, here is that the sales declines at Best Buy have been among the biggest, um, you know, in, in the world of, of big U.S. retailers. And what they're saying now is that, you know, they're starting to get a little bit less bad, and they have a line of sight to, you know, being kind of flat, maybe even growing a little bit next year. They also said that short refresh cycles in the tech are being driven by, guess what, Caroline? Artificial intelligence. Our mm. thanks to Bloomberg's Brendan Case. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Let's get a talking tech. And first up, OpenAI has now a corporate version of ChatGPT with privacy safeguards and added features like longer text prompts. This in an effort to make money from its well-known chatbot. And speaking of AI, Google is adding AI tools from companies like Meta and Anthropic to its cloud platform, weaving more generative AI into its products and positioning itself as a one-stop shop for cloud customers seeking to tap into the technology. Plus, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer plans to bring together several tech industry chiefs to discuss the ramifications of AI. Next month, that meeting includes Tesla CEO Elon Musk, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg, but also the CEOs of Google, Microsoft, and many others. This will be the first of Schumer's AI Insight Forums aimed at giving Congress more influence over the future of AI. Caroline. No mention of a cage match. Meanwhile, let's stick with AI, though. How is... Well, it's changing the game of basically everything, but particularly your wealth management. Let's talk about it with Brad Genzer, founder, CTO of Father, a startup focused on utilizing pretty cutting-edge technology to advance wealth management in particularly the sort of mass affluent area, I'd suppose. And you, of course, were what, busy building the AI team over at Goldman when it came back to sort of the wealth, private wealth management part. How have you brought that over with Father? What are you offering that's different? Hi, Caroline. First, Ed, Caroline, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's fun to be here. It's a fun time to be in wealth management technology. And, uh, you know, when you talk to someone like me, it's really been four years in the trenches or farther, uh, kind of grinding away and realizing the opportunity ahead. And now we have these big moments where it comes out to the public. So we've been at this for, for a very long time. And just really quickly to, uh, to sort of... Um, adjust there. We are focused on kind of the core high net worth market, um, but you'll find that if you use technology, you can actually broaden your audience. It's an operational problem. We, we, put, we put these wealth management uh, kind of verticals around wealth because it's profitable to operationally serve higher net worth, mm -hmm. but you, it's all the same operations all the way down. So just to your question about how, uh, about how we're bringing, bringing forth AI, um, 
we broadly believe that quantitative methods are going to help us to meet the opportunity in our industry. And if we look at how our industry is covering, is, is covering the opportunity, there's about $420 trillion of, of, of net worth in the United States. And if I add up what the biggest players are doing, it's hard for me to get to 20 trillion. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a massive opportunity to bring everything out towards, uh, out to a broader set of people. And that's what AI can bring us. But can it in the here and the now when we're still looking at perhaps regulatory uh, headwinds at least? It seems to be garnering more oversight from Gary Gensler. Well, it certainly does seem to be garnering, garnering more oversight. But you know, I, I think that we're fortunate in this in, in this um, in this time to say uh, to have someone heading the SEC, for for example, who knows about this technology and actually is able to talk uh, talk about it. Because I don't know that you have that across the board in government right now. Um, you know, if you look back at how Gary Gensler has written about uh, AI technology. He wrote a paper in 2020. This is three years ago, one year after Farther was founded, and this is really the time that we started to see all the pieces come together for AI to start to start delivering. So. Um he has a mission to do here and now. It's to protect investors. I hope that as we go forward, he also realizes and sort of leans into protect investors, but also get maximum number of people exposure to markets because it's a true miracle being in the markets. Greg, could you explain how your, your technology for proprietary tech works? I, I, I see that you know, on, your, on your website, you still talk up the experience of the human advisors that work with you at, at Father. Yes, and I think it's really, really important that you hit on that, Ed, that we, we fundamentally believe, and this is, from, this is from deep knowledge of the technology, as someone who's been a leader and been around it for a very, very long time, um, that humans are, are required to have a great wealth experience and will be for the foreseeable future. I think that if you ask anyone, and, and we ask people, hey, would you, like, would you like AI to fully manage your money in a, gener in a very, very general way? People say, well, one, what does it mean to manage my money? And advisors help in that. And also, uh, they tend to say, no, we want to interact with people. It's just that technology can allow more humor, human interaction, really. Brad, uh, you talked about you know, your, your leadership of the technology. You were at Goldman Sachs for, for several years. Has David Solomon phoned you up and said, Brad, I, I need your help with this AI thing. I, I don't get it. Come in here and help us. It, you, you know, I don't know. He, I must be off his text chain. And you know, <laughs> Chuck, Chuck Schumer also hasn't, hasn't texted me yet. I, I'm still waiting for the invite. <laughs> well, we'll get. Uh, I'm sure you'll get wind to them, and, and with some of the backers that you have, of course, you've got backers like Bessemer Ventures, Coastal Ventures. Of course, these sort of VCs have the ear in Washington many a time. I'm interested in look, the high net worth professionals that you serve. What weren't they getting when you were at Goldman? Why did you feel you had to get out, had to serve, and build something different? So when you think about what, where we are, if we look back at the history of wealth management, we had for the fidelities of the world, vanguards of the world, who were bringing uh, mutual funds. That's like execution and some strategy involved. What we really get to do now in AI is we get to have a deeply personalized plan. And personalization is an overused uh, mm. thing in our, in our industry, but really we are fully contextualizing and able to fully contextualize the relationship. So that's based on your taxes, where you live, uh, what's going on in your bank accounts, and we can broaden the, the breadth of what wealth management is to provide much better experience and deliver it at scale. And again, I've talked about how we're not really covering the opportunity that well as an industry. Brad, how concerned are your, your clients about their data 
um, you know, protection of it and how it's used. And, you know, by extension, I already asked you about the technology, but is it a case that you're kind of technology agnostic? You take an existing large language model and vectorize your own client data, or how, how does that work? So. One of the things that, and this is where uh, you'll continue to hear me say as I talk about AI and the broad market, we have a lot of frameworks in histor history that's already been solved around these problems. In wealth management, discretion is one of the most important things that, that advisors bring to the table. You are talking about the most deeply sensitive subjects in, in, in your life. You're talking about how you feel about your family. You're talking about how you feel about your job. And that has always been a core tenant of a good wealth advisor, and it extends to technology as well. So when we think about, pro when we think about data and managing it, we actually don't ever send your personal data to large language models. We, we, we may send templates to populate that data, but we retain all, all of that data. And as, as you pointed to, ChatGPT has an enterprise version, but still, we're, on, we're waiting for more robust tools before we start sending data across. Uh, Brad Genser, founder and CTO at Father. Just really interesting to draw the link between the technology and your industry. Thank you so much for your time. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, Apollo IO, a platform for sales and marketing workflow tools, nabs a $1.6 billion valuation. Our exclusive conversation coming up with Apollo IO CEO Tim Jeng and Bain Ventures Merit Hummer. That's coming up next, Carrie. Yeah, and meanwhile, before we pivot to the world of VC, let's just well, shine a light on what's happening in crypto. It is the story of the day, it feels like. Up 7% on Bitcoin at the moment. In fact, the biggest move for the asset since March of 2023. So clearly managing to trade, though basically that's higher since August 16th. Remember, we have significantly sold off throughout the month of August, as we have across most of the tech asset classes. From New York and San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Sales tech platform Apollo IO has raised $100 million in new financing, placing it at a $1.6 billion valuation. The Series D investment was led by Bain Capital Ventures with participation from existing investors, including Sequoia Capital, Tribe Capital, and Nexus Venture Partners at a higher valuation than it had before. Let's bring in Apollo IO CEO Tim Jeng and Bain Ventures partner Merritt Hummer for this. Merritt, I'll start with you. Apollo is a great example of a company where... AI is is basically adding to the value and utility of customer data. But you, you point out their track record is why you were interested to do this round and, and indeed at a higher valuation. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we, we were really struck by the fact that Apollo is growing so quickly and so efficiently at scale, uh, more so than the vast majority of companies in the market today. And it was a very unusual um, combination of characteristics that got us very excited about the company. Tim, you have more than 500,000 companies, millions of users. Why do you need $100 million? Yeah, we feel like it's the perfect time uh, for us to raise money right now. We've grown our revenue over 9x in the last uh, couple of uh, years. Uh, We're going after a giant market. Although we're still really efficient, uh, we just feel like now is the perfect time to pour pour fuel under the fire. Okay, let's talk about that fuel. You said you're going to be investing in product, Tim. You're going to be investing in R&D, but also talent. Just how expensive has that talent become and where do you add to it, Tim? Yeah, uh, we're definitely an R&D company uh, first and foremost. So we're uh, investing over 60% of our revenue typically on R&D, hiring very, very globally. Uh, The uh, market's definitely not as crazy as it was before in terms of the the talent market. Um, But hiring a lot of engineers, uh, designers, product PMs across the world, especially uh, within uh, AI. Talking about things that aren't as crazy, well... Funding isn't as crazy at the moment, Merit, and it's been a tougher time for venture capitalists who've just raised big funds, just as Bain Ventures has, to be trying to app allocate in this environment where perhaps there's fewer to choose from. What sort of growth do you want to see from companies? Is it all about annual recovering revenues? Is it about being able to retrench on spending and ensure they're focused on the bottom line? Is there a rule of thumb here? Yes, it's, it's a great question, very timely question. I think what we've seen in the market is, you know, a couple of years ago, um, top-line momentum was really the, the primary thing that investors were paying attention to in the venture space, and I think that has really shifted to thinking more about efficient growth. Um, what is, the, what is the, the investment required to drive that, that top-line momentum? And that's where, really, where Apollo really stands out. When you look at their efficient growth metrics, metrics like rule of 40, um, they're really best in class, and that's what got us so excited about making the investment. Uh, Tim, what I find interesting about your company is you're based here in San Francisco, but you are remote first. It's a topic we've discussed on the show quite a lot recently. Just explain your thesis of why that's the best way to work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's uh, so much talent all around the world, uh, and uh, we definitely just want the best access to talent, uh, regardless of where, of where they're located. Especially, you know, there's definitely a, uh, a exodus of talent from from SF as well. It's still the Bay Area, is still the center of of tech, but uh, you know, now great talent is is everywhere uh, in the world. So and really, 
Mary, I know a number of VC board members that don't agree with that thesis. They want to see their portfolio companies work together, you know, be in one place. What, what, what do you make of the remote work position that Apollo has? Yeah, you know, I think our view is there's there's not one size fits all answer to that. I think for every company it's different, and for some companies a distributed workforce can work really well depending on the nature nature of what they do, and for others it's really important to be centrally located in one place. I'm just going to go back to Tim what it is that you offer. I mean, I think what you're the first sales tech unicorn minted in 2023, and you've been sort of saying what makes you stand out, and of course it's about allowing sales reps to do what exactly that is, to sell, to not be having to permanently moving between tools and having cumbersome interaction with CRM. But one thing that took my eye was the fact that you were saying that some of your competitors, dare I name one of them, Zoom Info, for example, you say they seem unified, but they're not because they've acquired. Does that therefore mean you won't be using funds to ever acquire other companies? Uh, never say never, but we're really focused on building the absolute best user experience for the end user. Uh, from day one, our goal is to build a unified end-to-end solution from the bottoms up that is the simplest to use and most accessible to get started and the most delightful user experience. Uh, we've uh, now built the most uh, number one uh, rated product uh, for sales. Uh, it's the most loved product, and a lot of that has been uh, the way that we've architected the product from, from day one. Mary, on this program, we, we make the distinction between AI native and sort of AI adjacent companies, those set to most benefit from this next generation of, of artificial intelligence technology. Does your investment thesis fit, fit that split as well? Absolutely, although I would frame it differently. I would call it AI-enabled. So um, Apollo is absolutely an AI company, but it had an established um, distribution and product um, that wasn't AI-native from the start, but has unique right to embed AI into the product over time. We want to thank both of you. Fascinating to be able to get into the inner workings of what makes an up round. We congratulate you on Apollo IO, of course, CEO Tim Jang and Bain Ventures partner Merit Hammer. So Walmart is planning its longest distance drone deliveries yet by teaming up with Alphabet's wing unit at two Dallas area stores. The wing drones will be able to drop off food and household essentials as far as six miles from the stores. Let's bring in wing CFO Shannon Nash. She's here with me in San Francisco. There is a caveat, which is that a spotter is needed to look out for any aircraft that can't transmit their location. Just explain it, that, that caveat and how the technology works. So, so at Wing, we're actually, we have permission from the FAA to fly what's called beyond the visual line of sight. Right. So for, for us, we don't have the said spotter that you're talking about. Um, the way that we operate is, is we have somebody, um, we have pilots that are able to really look at um, the area, if you will, um, in terms of where our drones are flying, as opposed to looking at, I think people think that there's somebody just looking at the drone and flying and right. seeing how far it can go. I've had people say they think there's somebody with a joystick actually controlling the drone. We're completely autonomous. Um, and so th- that's why we're super excited about this opportunity. With You're Walmart. the CFO of Wings. So I've got to ask, you know, it's two stores, but big stores in Dallas. How big a deal is this for Wing, commercially speaking? Yeah, this is a this is a huge deal. Let's just take a step back. Wing has operated and done over 350,000 commercial deliveries in three continents. This allows us to expand in the U.S. Um, with this Walmart um, partnership, we will be able to reach 60 over 60,000 households in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And so this is is again just part of our our scaling um, opportunity, and we're super excited uh, to be working with Walmart. 
what sort of demand are you seeing? How many people are wanting to rush to get to the app to make sure that they can, in the Dallas area, receive these sorts of, well, deliveries that we just saw on our screen? Yeah, we, so we spend a lot of time working on community engagement and really, and really engaging on um, um, the need for um, our services in the local area. We've already been operating in Dallas. Um, we have a partnership with Walgreens, and people have been asking for us to do more. So we're super excited that we're able to come back to the Dallas area, not only do more with Walmart, we've extended, expanded our hours, and we'll be able to reach a lot more of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And it's interesting, medicine, medical drone delivery also, a focus of yours in Ireland, for example. I'm, I'm really interested, though, in what this stepping stone means because 60,000, that's a lot of people, but it's certainly not the millions in the US. What gets us there? What sort of timeline, what sort of regulatory approval do you need so that me in New York can also get it delivered? I think those are great questions, and we've spent a lot of time you know, working with industry partners on really expanding some of those approvals. I, say, I think, look, the reality is we are, we are partnering with Wall right now. That is the stepping stone to get to what you're talking about, where this is expanded to the millions. We think that we are building a safe, um, reliable, efficient drone delivery system that is capable of getting to those millions. And so this is, this is the journey that we're taking, and Walmart is very important to us expanding in that way. There's the, the sort of FAA regulation factor that impacts how quickly you can grow. But, but there's also different attitudes from different cities, states, retailers. Where do you feel like you're making most progress? W which areas are most supportive to deploying drone technology? You know, I think that there's, there's a study that um, the, uh, Virginia Tech did in Christiansburg, Virginia, where actually we are doing drone delivery. And it showed that 90%, almost 90% of those who took that study were very positive about drone delivery and wanted it to come to their communities. We even just recently showcased a couple um, at who's in their 80s who actually have had the most drone deliveries and set a world record. They've gotten over 1,200 deliveries in the last couple of years. And my favorite part about their 1,200 deliveries is they got almost 100 boxes of Girl Scouts delivered to their house. So <laughs> we think the demand is there. <laughs> That's a brilliant story. I'm not going to ask how many eggs they got delivered as well, as I know you do that pretty efficiently. I mean, it needs some like power players, some mass adoption and, and people to really show how much this works. But ultimately, what, what are the things, that sort of the teething issues in your scaling? I mean, what about talent? What about bringing in the know-how to continue to expand and ensure that this delivery can happen so succinctly? Is it something that you think about a lot? Yeah, absolutely. As, as most tech companies, innovative companies, you think about uh, attracting and retaining the best talent out there. I think, look, we are very fortunate to be a part of um, Alphabet. Alphabet is our parent company. Um, and so I think that, you know, we continue to attract and try to retain the best talent out there. I think there's a lot of opportunities for, for people looking to get into new industries. I think drone delivery industry um, offers a lot of opportunity. And I think we're going to see a lot more more talent coming um, into the industry. We want to Wing thank CFO Shannon Nash. Oh, sorry, Carrie. No. Wing CFO Shannon Nash. I get excited about drones. You know that I do. And it's interesting to see some real-world real world deployment. Carrie. Yeah, I get excited about breaking news as well, Ed, which is entirely why I tried to step on your, on your funder there a little bit, because we've got some news coming from 
X, Musk's X, in fact, we understand is going to allow political advertising. The company is saying in a blog post. When you go to the blog post, it's called Supporting People's Right to Accurate and Safe Political Discourse on X. And they're really talking about how they're currently expanding their safety and elections teams to focus on combating manipulation, servicing inauthentic accounts, and closely monitoring the platform for emerging threats. But notable, Ed, that they're actually thinking of beefing up teams in that area after the headcount cuts that we've seen in that business. Meanwhile, yeah, look, it starts in the US. They're going to allow paid for promoted political votes, but prohibit false or misleading content. Sounds familiar. <laughs> that does it from this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tomorrow, we've got a big one. Michael Sonnenschein is going to be from Graysale, CEO, joining at 10.30 a.m. on that landmark ruling to Ed. Yeah, recap with the podcast, wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, and Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.